You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, Gavin. So I always like to ask people this first question. You can take it in any direction you'd like, but what were you like growing up and, and what were some of the things that really stand out about young Gavin Spittle? Oh, man. Um <laughs> Young Gavin Spittle had a major height problem. <laughs> um, I suffered like millions of Americans and millions of Americans don't have it with uh, uh, thyroid issues that was not detected. So I went into high school at four foot 11 and I was fat and short. I know I could tell from the look on your face. You never knew that. I, no, no one knows this about me. I don't think I knew that at all. No, I was I was short and uh, I was chubby. I'll be at playing all sports. It ran in my family. Um, I think for people out there that are tired or you know feel cold all the time, you know when you get your physical, make sure you get your thyroid levels checked because people just think they're stressed out in the workplace today and everything. And for years, I like hit it. I didn't want people to know that I had an underactive thyroid. But the reality was when I started, you know, when my thyroid was healthy, I could feel the growth in my knees because I shot up um, to where I am today. At so seven I, feet tall. Yeah, yeah. I, I fully believe had this been detected earlier, I would have had an NBA career, <laughs> at least a Euro career. <laughs> so it stunted me. Um, but yeah, it, I played all sports kid. I was a passionate sports fan. Um knew always what I wanted to do. And I played, despite my height, I played basketball. Uh, my true love was baseball. Um, and, uh, but I was better at tennis. So I would work the two, which was a lot on the arm. Um, but yeah, I used to travel around playing baseball and stuff. And it was, uh, it was a great experience. I grew up in a very, very small town. Uh, very grateful for that. Uh, amazing friends. Uh, my family is, I uh, can't say enough about them. Um, those were the days, Jared, when you would leave the house in the morning and you would come back when it's dinner or dark. And your parents didn't even, they didn't care where you went. You just would ride your bike and hang out with friends. Yeah, ride my bike to the center of town or ride my bike. Um, to my job, to and from, as long as I made it to the games and or as long as I got home for dinner. Um, my parents, to their credit, had an amazing ability to um, kind of oversee me, but they were not stern. I will remember when I was a little kid, we always laugh about that. My mom would take the wooden spoon and knock it against the countertop and we'd go scattering as kids, my sister and I. Um, but that, you know, 
they were so terrific to me. Um, I can't say enough about them and my sister for that reason. It was an amazing, you know, growing up in that family, what they were able to uh, give to me uh, is a lot what I am today. Okay, so you mentioned tennis, and, and you went on you went on and played college tennis, and I want to mm-hmm. get to that in a second. But what drew you to sports? Why were you so passionate about sports growing up? My dad was a good high school pitcher, and uh, through sidearm, and probably a combination of him and I, the kids in my neighborhood were about two to three years older than me. So I always kind of grew up at a disadvantage and trying to fit in with them. I had a I had a neighbor that was like, you know, we couldn't be separated. We'd play sports all day long. And that's where my passion began. And uh, yeah, and then I would go home at night. And a lot of people don't remember this. They used to air Monday Night Baseball. And, you know, I'd watch the big red machine. And I grew up in a... Uh, a town by the ocean. And in that town, you know, lobster fishing was huge. So my mom would stop and she would buy, because no one wants to eat the lobster knuckles. So they'd come in a big paper bag for like $2 or something. And I would sit there with a little fork as a kid and I would eat and I would listen to the way the games were played. And I was always fascinated by that. And I loved reading. And, you know, my passion for sports a lot of times came from collectible cards. Um, I knew which players played in Walla Walla, Washington. Um, <laughs> you know, I knew Phil Garner's nickname was Scrap Iron from playing APBA baseball. And, um, you know, uh, I think it's uh, Felipe Lopez was called Senor Smoke. And all those nicknames were on the cards. And so that's when I became a big baseball card collector. And that's kind of like where the passion just grew to, to all sports, where to the point where if the big sky was on when cable TV came in, I would watch Montana. Or, you know, I just, there wasn't a sport that I, that I wouldn't gravitate towards. So when you're growing up, okay, so you, you went on, you, you played tennis at Curry College, and was it two years ago you were inducted into the Hall of Fame. So you weren't just some scrub that showed up and decided that you uh, wanted to try walk on you had a really accomplished tennis career at any point were you thinking that would be what you'd want to do did you ever think i want to play professional tennis and, and what were some of the things at like when you were growing up where you're like i'd like to be this when i grow up tennis for me it was really interesting baseball was my passion tennis was my sport that doesn't mean i didn't have passion for the great game of tennis I just had a passion for baseball, Um, but I think I was a really good town player, but (laughs) it really comes down to the girls, Jared. And the fact of the matter was I could make varsity tennis and I could not make, I would have, I would have had to work two, three years to make varsity baseball. And I wanted that jacket (laughs) because back then wearing that jacket meant everything. I remember picking up my jacket my sophomore year in summer and my parents drove me down And I picked up my jacket and it's in the middle of summer and I was wearing that letter jacket because I wanted everyone to know that I played a varsity sport. So, you know, I mean, that's as as crazy as it is. That was, that was, I mean, I think I've learned more about life lessons in tennis. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was, those were my kind of 
two two things. Uh, I never, you know, playing competitive tennis was it, it was interesting. Um, I love the road trips. I love the guys. Um, I love the stories. Um, it just, I, I knew I wasn't going to Wimbledon. And this theater of mind, audio of mind captured me in radio. Um, and therefore, you know, most of my senior year in college was actually working in radio. So I knew I put the, you know, had to put the racket down and, you know, that was kind of a tough thing. You know, I, I still had a year left and I was the all time leader in wins there. And, you know, I wanted to kind of stretch that record, <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, you know, like I said, I, I knew there wasn't, I didn't get the training, the academies and everything like that. Everything I learned from tennis was basically watching it on TV. And my first lessons were really in high school. Um, yeah. So it was just, you know, it was, it was, I'm so glad I did it though. So you were inducted into the hall of fame. Are you yeah. still the all time wins leader? I think it's been surpassed. Okay. Yeah. Um, the other one that stung was I was, you know, they'd name team MVPs. It would go up on the wall of the college. So I had won three in a row and I would have been the first person in the college history to take four. If I had made it four, um, I was got three. I still got three and I still got a year of eligibility. left. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so college is listening out there. You know, if you need a 48 year old, um, <clears throat> I think like I was good. We've played at tennis. Mm -hmm. I think I'm good. I don't think I, I think I'm really good at the basics and I think that my strategy works. Um, I just never thought that I was like a guy that could take it to, the next level. I, I, I always thought of myself as outwilling my opponents, outsmarting my opponents, being more tactical and from the things that I learned. You know, I mean, I had a coach tell me once, you know, we're talking college back in the 90s, so the technology wasn't there like it is today. Um, you know, back when I was playing, we didn't have internet. So, you know, one of the things is, is that, you know, coaches would tell me early, your best scouting happens actually in warmups. So for those people that are playing tennis out there, the five to 10 minutes that you use to warm up, don't just take it to hit around. Hit strategic shots to see how weak their backhand or strong their backhand is or how strong their forehand is. Ask them you want to take some up at net, see how their volley game is. Let them take as many serves as they want. Because that is getting your timing down for the match. I think people use it to warm up, but you should use it to warm up with strategy involved. So from the first point, you actually have a tactical advantage and know what you're going to do. You have a game plan going in. Next time we play, I'm not warming up at all. We're just going to yeah. go right into it. I'm not letting I, you I shouldn't me. have I told you <laughs> that. I really shouldn't have told all my opponents that because I don't think a lot of people realize that. So when did you start developing an interest in a career in radio or broadcasting. What, what I, and I know you said you'd, you'd go home and you'd, you'd watch or listen to the games. Yeah. So I don't know if subconsciously it started then, but like, when did you consciously think like, Hey, this is something I'd like to do. It never wasn't in my mind. Uh, I remember as a kid, us talking about what we want to do. And, you know, for a while I thought about the coast guard, you know, Indiana Jones made me want to be a kind of an archeologist, uh, you know, 
Um, but at the same time, I, I said to myself, like, this theater of mind is so gravitating toward me. Uh, I can't deny it and I have to embrace it. I absolutely loved listening to the radio and I still love listening to the radio. Um, I used to listen to morning talk shows over music. Uh, I, I love the way that people came through my radio. I felt as though I knew them. The first time I entered a radio station, I was shaking because that to me was like the Hollywood of actually entering a radio station. So, it never wasn't in my mind that I was a shy kid growing up. Um, and so like to get into radio, you know, was a little bit more difficult. I had to open up, but, uh, yeah. So that, that was never not like, I remember my neighbor's parents talking about how I'm going to be a sports broadcaster. I used to sit on their couch and call the games, you know, I mean, when, when Al Michaels, do you believe in miracles? I mean, yes, that was amazing. And you know, it's, 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 it's not talked about that that game was taped like in technology nowadays with Twitter and Facebook and social media. I mean, you know, imagine the, I don't even know if it's arguably the greatest game in American history was recorded and played later. And we knew nothing about the outcome. I think my dad told me once, and he had just moved to America and was, like everyone else in the country, super excited for that game. I think he got in an elevator, and a guy had a smile on his face, and my dad just could sense he was about to say something about the game. And I don't know how this guy knew, because like you said, it wasn't on yet, and my dad said, don't say anything. Like He just walked in and was like, I don't want to know. Yeah, uh, and it's crazy. Like the NBA playoffs weren't live up until a point, and right now everything's instant. Now it's like you go on Twitter and they know what's happening before the actual yeah. event is taking. Place. Yeah, I mean you can't you can't watch like a Netflix show and go on Twitter. You no. know the outcome. I yeah. mean everyone wants to spoilers or it's just spoilers are reality now. It's no longer even called spoilers. But what I loved about that game is that game changed a culture. Um, America was struggling at that time. And Americans needed something to latch on to. And that really, I mean, we talk about why we need sports right now during this pandemic. I mean, what we were going through with, you know, lines around the corner and gasoline shortages and hostage crises and a team that nobody thought was going to win to come back and do what they did after getting blown out prior to the Olympics by that same Russian team and then to be down by two goals, which nobody talks about against Finland and to come back once again and take the gold. I mean, uh, it's just a shining moment. It, it really is. So, so situations like that, I was like, Oh my God, I gotta, I have to be involved in radio. That's, that's so cool. But it wasn't sports radio necessarily. It, I loved sports, but I also knew that my path could take me in other areas. So you're you're still on air as the hockey hawk and did we the punt the punting do we have a, a name for the punter? Yeah, two quality punters taken in the draft. Who, well, do we have like a nickname for your your prowess in assessing punters? We have um, the hockey hawk. Yeah. I don't know if we're gonna call it the punter sparrow or <laughs> Okay. We're, we're we, gonna we're gonna do the bird theme. Okay. But we, I you know, I'm not I'm not sure. I the I, punting parrot? The punting parrot's pretty okay. good. I gravitate toward those things. Uh, I'm fascinated by punting and I don't understand why there's not more value in punting. You know, and it's 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 I just don't, you know, it's a it's a game changer, it's a it's a field changer, but yet 
And it's like, well, it's a punter. They're a dime a dozen. Okay. You know? It's kind of like quarterbacks where there aren't 32 good quarterbacks in the NFL. And there's not, there certainly aren't, when you watch punting, there certainly aren't 32 good punters in the NFL. Yeah. The disappointing thing is I've actually met and spoken and talked with various NFL punters, and they are less excited about punting than I am. <laughs> That's what's frustrating. Because <laughs> I, I think it's like they see a guy running up to them, like, and excited and talking about hang time and stuff. And, man, why don't they do, why don't they do the, you know, the boot in the corner anymore to down it at the one? You know, things like that. <laughs> And they're like, who are you? <laughs> why, why are you doing this? And why do you have a fascination with what I do? So between that and uh, the, the hockey podcast you do here for the station, uh, you still maintain an on-air presence. But when you first started, uh, that was really primarily your responsibility, right? Who who were some of your on-air influences and, and uh, what stands out to you about your experiences early in your career in that capacity? Uh, on-air influences when I was a kid, uh, I grew up listening to WEEI in Boston. That was a mammoth radio station, and uh, I would I would listen to the way they, they go about things. Um, they were a standalone sports station at the time. Uh, I could barely get in WFN in New York, but I would listen to that. I would actually call them. Um, Steve Summers, who's still on the air, I used to call Steve Summers, and he said, because you're calling from Boston, I'll give you this. And he played the Bill Buckner between the legs. <laughs> oh, no. You know, so, I mean, it was just, and I don't even know if I can remember it. There was a cable channel where at during the day it was financial, and at night um, it was sports, and it was TV sports, and they did a show called Time Out for Trivia, and then they'd talk sports, and they were just on the screen, and people would call in. And I thought it was innovative. It was like, you know, what we're seeing today, they were doing way back then. And I used to lock it on and watch it in my bedroom, fall asleep to it. You know, so that's when I really got hooked on sports talk. And, you know, I wanted to be on air. Uh, very fortunate, you know, Curry put me on the air right away. Um, my first time on the air, I swore twice. Yeah. You want to hear that story? I, I think so. So <laughs> I won't swear. Okay. I should because it makes the story better, but for podcast, you know, safety standards in case someone's listening in the car with a kid. So young Gavin Spittle um, in a class of radio and they said, we have, we need a fill-in host for an oldies show on Saturday night. I raised my hand. I never had any training, and I said, I'll do it. And they said, okay. So super nervous walking in, show up a little early. The guy trains me. So at the time, we're playing records. So I didn't need a microphone because I was screaming into the microphone. You know, uh, you're listening to Gavin Spittle. It's Dusty Labels. You know, and... For the first hour, I'm like, this is amazing. This is the biggest high ever. I didn't realize due to the lack of training that you could, you could put the audio board down so you could listen to the record over the speakers. So I was queuing up records, barely could hear them with my ear. Never forget, wake up little Susie by the Everly Brothers with no music startup. So you're listening to Gavin Spittle, 91.5 WMLN, the pride of Curry College. And I hit it 
and the record didn't have enough time to speed up. So it was like, wake up a little Susie, wake up. And I said, you gotta be essing me. Elvis <laughs> <laughs> fell out of my chair. <laughs> so I was like, you gotta be essing me. Because that was my first ever mistake. And then the request line starts ringing like 30 seconds later. And I pick up the phone and it's my roommate from college, Ray. And I was like, hey, Ray, how do I sound? Oh, no. He says, you sound great, but you just said S on the air. I said, oh, F. He said, you just said F on the air. Oh, no. <laughs> and it was like a slow Western, you know, when they're meeting at the OK Corral, slowly pulling the gun out. Like, no. That was me reaching for the microphone to turn it off. So my first time ever cracking the airwaves, two swears. And that's why you'll hear me sometimes say sugar fudge. Because <laughs> you can't get fined for those. Yeah, so, I mean, that's when I just, like, dove into it headfirst, loved it, loved being on air, and, and yeah, um, worked in Boston on the air for a little bit, um, and, uh, yeah, just uh, did the on-air thing, and then uh, got into the programming, uh, and someone gave me advice and said, you're really good on air, but I think you have what it takes to be a really good manager. So... And First of all, for reasons you know and I know, I really appreciate that story. And we'll <laughs> leave it at that. Uh, so I, I remember I, I've been having some really weird dreams lately. I'm, I'm not even joking. I had a dream where a goat swallowed my laptop. So Ooh. I don't know. I could be making this up. But okay. I remember like when we first, I don't know if it was when I first started in this role or, or prior to that because we knew each other before. But you, I was asking you about your career and you'd said, sort of what you just hinted at that you you very well could still be doing on air stuff yeah. you found a passion for programming so i guess what what is it about programming that led you down this path well what is it about it that you love so much i get the same high and i had no idea when i was board operating in boston when my program director came on you know or in the i first of all i was nervous when they came behind me and i said i'd never want that job and yet that job, once again, became my life. I got the same high out of programming that I did being on air. So, excuse me, it started by mistake in that I was kind of stuck at a radio station and I got a call one day from an old professor of mine. And he says, hey, I have a job for you and it's good and bad news. And I said, okay. I said, the good news is you're going to be running a radio station and you're going to start it from scratch. And I said, wow. I said, what's the, what's the bad news? He said, that's a religious station. I said, well, let's start. Let's go. So my first time programming a radio station was a startup religious station through a family, which, you know, I'm forever grateful to the Carter family. And uh, what I learned from them was absolutely amazing and starting something from scratch and it's really interesting. Those years looking back of, you know, listening to music stations, listening to how people did morning shows and everything, I took that to the religious radio station. You know, you cannot be cornered based on the format. So we would give away Bibles on the air. We would give away concert tickets. 
you know, I'd be talking with like Christian concert promoters, you know, Christian bookstores and stuff like that. It became quite a profitable business. Uh, I got to know a lot of pastors on the air. So it was, uh, yeah, it was amazing. And now you're, you're here in Dallas, Dallas, Fort Worth, and you took over a station in the fan that, you know, is had this uphill battle because, uh, the ticket had been around for however many years and basically had this huge head start on everyone. And, and some stations had tried to develop and just had failed along the way. And I know when I started, I don't recall what the ratings were, but uh, there was a clear number one. And in a, a relatively short time, uh, now the fan is ahead of the ticket in ratings. And, and at worst, even uh, the most loyal listener of other stations would have to acknowledge that the fan is 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 right there. What what do you do? How do you win people over? How do you how do you develop that when people, in in some ways, seem like they already have their mind totally set on what they like? How do you crack that? You don't necessarily crack it. You just try to get new ones, and um. I used to program live 105.3 and then I went to Houston for several years and the fan had started and I, you know, went down to Houston and, uh, I, I, I thought I was going to stay in Houston for a long time and got the call to come back. And, you know, I went back and forth in my head about it because I was like, wow, this is a major undertaking. But at the same time, you know, unfinished business. 105.3 has always been close to my heart. Um, you know, if you talk about programming, I've now programmed that signal uh, for 13, 14 years. Um, and, you know, I love it. Same with 1080 KRLD. Um, so uh, how do I get listeners? Um, I try to put myself in their shoes. I, I'm not one of those guys that's going to throw analytics your way. That's like you're going to say to yourself, wow, this guy, you know, his strategy is amazing. But what I will do is I will outwork. I will not stop. Um, I will be relentless. I will be passionate. And um, you know what really comes down? You're in the room with me to people like you, people to like Sean, RJ, um, the people that when we first created this project bought into the playbook. And I think the playbook, you know, people say like, oh, you're related to sports. Well, we talk sports for a living and that's what we're, the playbook calls for this radio station to be as listener, as friendly as possible to the point where I like to use the term teammates because that's what our listeners are. And I've always said, if you could go out and shake a hand, that's far more valuable than driving by 60 miles per hour at a billboard. I think we'd all love to have billboards up and everything like that, but shaking someone's hand and developing a personal relationship with the listener where they think to themselves exactly what I pictured them to be, they're even better. That's something special because I can go throughout the years of my career where people that I pictured to be one way <laughs> turned out to be such disappointments because similar to reading a book where you create that character, I had created this amazing character in my mind. Some of them exceeded my expectations. Others fell short. So I never wanted any of our hosts out in the public to feel as though, like, I want the host to, like, 
touch the listeners, feel the listeners, be the listeners, hang with the listeners, buy the listeners drinks. You know, it just becomes a community. And that's what we wanted to create on the fan. And, you know, it really does come down to the clubhouse. Every radio station that I've created, whether it be news, news talk, um, sports, culture in the clubhouse, religious, whatever you want to format, culture in the clubhouse. If the staff gets along, it's amazing how they want to promote each other, team up with each other, work on projects together. And that's what it comes down to. So inherently in this role on air, it requires personality and there are a lot of different personalities at any radio station. And it's in some ways your job to lead a lot of different personalities. Uh, How do you go about managing personalities and uh, I guess adjusting to you know, the differences that, you know, one host might have uh, than another, just from like a personality standpoint. I can't imagine, I know everyone is unique in any job, but I just, I think a lot of people on air, like they've got strong personalities. Uh, So how do you go about managing that? Yeah. You don't treat everyone. I've never been of the makeup that everyone needs to be treated the same. I think you find out what those personalities are and you talk to them in a way that they can relate to, understand. And I always want my employees to feel as though that guy, my boss, is on the front lines with me. I always want them to feel that way. Because, excuse me, if they don't, then, you know, I don't want to be one of those guys that bosses hate. I got to be tough at times. I got to make tough decisions. But then you get to know the people And you get to know their personalities and what they want. And then the key is to be a servant leader. What can I do to help you? How can I, I mean, you know, I remember my first meeting. I wanted to make everyone in the room rock stars. That's what I wanted to do. That was my goal. It's like, I want to make you a lot of money. I want to make you guys the most popular in town. And once again, it's not about me. It's about you. That's why you don't hear me on air a lot because... I'd never want host thinking that it's about me. That's why I didn't like, I was scared to do the hockey podcast. I never wanted the host to feel as though that I was looking to fulfill my ego or anything like that, because my ego is fulfilled when the ratings come in, my ego is fulfilled when one of the shows is named, you know, one of the best talk show hosts in America or best shows in America. Um, my ego is filled when somebody, you know, that says, Hey, this person, you know, they'll never make it and they're super successful now. Um, that's what makes me happy. So I can't say enough about the talent on this radio station. It's tremendous. It really is. All right. We might have to do a part two because I got a lot more that I'd like to ask from that standpoint, but I'd be foolish not to address two other things that are unrelated to the programming side. First, your love of hockey. Yeah. So growing up in the Northeast, I mean, there's a lot of great hockey that part of the world. Uh, there are a lot of really good hockey teams. Yeah. But but what what was it about hockey that has elevated uh, a love of hockey to a burning passion for hockey? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Uh, I was always a big Bruins fan growing up. Cam Neely, Raymond Borg, Jerry Cheevers, um, Andy Moog, who we all know from Dallas Stars fame. So I was always a hockey guy and uh, really, really enjoyed the sport, understood the sport. It actually wasn't until I came to Dallas that it became my number one passion. And 
it became my number one passion, actually, once again, by accident, where somebody said, um, you're new in town, you like hockey? And I'm like, yeah. And they picked up the phone and they called the Dallas Stars. And they said, hey, I got a guy here. He's a you know new executive in town and he wants to be a season ticket holder. And I'm looking at this person on my first day of work. I'm like, what? No. And he just puts his hand up like, I got this. And he said, okay, okay, yep. All right, thanks. He's like, you're good to go. Four tickets waiting for you at will call tomorrow night. They want to woo you. And I was like, oh. So myself and three empty seats went that night. (laughs) (laughs) Since I knew nobody in town. Lots of legroom. Lots of legroom. Um, yeah. So I sat in the stands and I was like, wow, this is great. And single said to myself, uh, this would be a great place to take dates. So I started going to games and the passion grew and it grew even more. And then I got full season tickets. I like to feel the crowd. I'm a guy that likes to see the line changes from light ice level. So I started tweeting about it and as a star's passionate fan, and there were two people that are involved in NHL circles that reached out to me and said, you're right. And I just thought to myself, if they're saying I'm right, then I think I have a pretty good pulse on this. And so then I dove in, studied, um, you know, taping all the games, watching the various. And I really, really, I mean, it truly is a passion for me. Um, I love the game of hockey. I love how it's played. And then I got into the scouting aspect where I was watching a a 17-year-old Dennis Gurionov playing for Team Russia. When I said, that's Dallas, that guy's going to be a star. And I threw it out there and a lot of people got mad at me when, you know, when he had his bad years and everything. And I just said, give him time. And I was not a Nichushkin fan and let it known. I mean, <laughs> I think stars fans and myself have an interesting relationship because as much as I'm a stars fan, I'm not going to be a stars Homer. I'm going to tell it like it is. I'm going to tell you if this team's playoff ready or not. So I uh, got into it, radio stations from across the country and, you know, Canada started calling me and uh, I did interviews and it just, it um, did some color commentary in the AHL for a while. And, uh, you know, I'd show up in a three-piece suit, nervous as heck, taking notes. The play-by-play guy once said to me, he goes, you're the most overprepared person I've ever met. And he's like, people just show up to do these games. And I was like, no, man, no. And I didn't do every game. So I had to like do research and everything like that. So at the time, let's use a Marco Scandella, um, who's now in the NHL. You know, if I'm talking about him or Anton Hudobin was the goalie of the Houston Arrows when I did games. So like, you know, you'd have to get their background and that's their research and everything like that. So it just became a passion. It's a lot of fun. I, I, I really enjoy it. I wish I could do it more. I wish I could blog about it, write about it, do more hockey podcasts. The reality is, is that, you know, it takes a good two to three hours for me to prepare for a podcast. And, you know, I got to pay the bills with this gig. You're also 
kind of running the number one sports station in uh, DFW. That so does that, take that up some time. time. Yeah. All right, I want to ask you about memorabilia, but I'm going to save it. Can we do a part two at some point? Yeah. Okay, let's... I want to save the memorabilia because you've got some amazing sports memorabilia stories beyond just my house is going to get robbed. <laughs> <laughs> we won't. We won't. Uh, oh, okay. I, I never said they were at your house. Oh, they're I, in a vault, people. Yeah, they're in yeah. a vault. Uh, and then I, I want to dive more into to the programming side because I think there's a lot that people don't necessarily know or realize. But we'll save that for part two. That's what we call in the industry a tease. I don't like know it. one to ten. That might be like a three. But at least I put in the effort. Uh, Gavin, I appreciate it. Thanks, man.